All right. Well, thank you, Jason, for that uh, really encouraging introduction. Uh, just to give you guys a little bit uh, a kind words to Jason, too. Um, as a pastor, uh, I, I think everyone thinks uh, pastors are friends with other pastors. But uh, in all honesty, it's just like your coworkers. There's coworkers and friends. But with Jason, he's not a pastor friend, but he's uh, a friend first. So I'm really thankful to be here as citizens. I'm really thankful that he's leading you guys as well. My wife jokes, uh, Jason and Tom were the only people I saw, I saw outside of my family. So he is almost family like me uh, during the pandemic. But really excited to be here with you on this Sunday, this last Sunday of the year to close out uh, the year for you guys. And what I hope to do uh, as we just kind of close out is to kind of meditate on this word. And we'll be reading in First Peter in a little bit. But the idea is, what is the church? I, I don't mean what do we do as a church. I don't mean the activities, including a church. Those are all important. But what is the nature of the church? Because oftentimes I think we get that confused. We think the nature of the church is what we do, but there's something much deeper anchoring our community, the, the reason why we're gathered here on this Sunday. So what I hope to do and to show us clearly is that the church is called to be a temple and with that, if you guys could turn to 1 Peter chapter 2, uh, verses 4 to 10, I'll be reading that out. I think it'll be on the screen behind me as well. I'll be reading out of the ESV, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 to 10. I'm going to read this once for us, uh, and then I'll open this up in a word of prayer, and we'll get started. Uh, but verse 4, this is the word of God. As you come to him, Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ, for it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you, church, citizens of LA, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Uh, let me open this up in a word of prayer. Uh, Lord, as we gather here on this Sunday, as, as so many things are going on, as, as COVID is still raging, as it seems like political battles are not ending, and oftentimes just coming here on a Sunday can be such a hassle can be such a, a, a block or a hindrance or a speed bump in our schedules, but as we're all gathered here on this Sunday, maybe even virtually or physically, allow us just to meditate on the words from Peter of why we're called to be gathered, of why citizens or any church in, in, in this world is gathered together communally. So as we look into this word, Lord, anchor me in the spirit, not of my own wisdom, and in hopes that we could somehow glean your wisdom for the church. So we thank you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You know, one interesting thing as a pastor is everyone comes to me, usually not, not our lead pastor, but because I'm the associate, my lead always forwards me all the bad emails. But usually those bad emails are, oh, these are the problems of the church. You know, I, I've observed my time in this church, and these are the threats 
to this church. And my church is called True North. So oftentimes once a month, maybe once a week, hopefully not daily, we'll, we'll get these emails or messages. And it's a common theme that I get. And it's a question that I would even ask you because I'm sure if you've been at Citizens or even if you're new and you know of the church, the question I would propose to you to begin today is this. What do you feel is the biggest threat to the church? What do you feel like is the biggest danger to the church? Usually, all the emails that I get are external threats. You know, for some people, they might even say, oh, Satan or the devil is the greatest hindrance to the church. And there is some truth to that. I think in a materialist world, especially being in the West Coast, oftentimes we diminish the spiritual realities that we live in. But the thing is, one thing that Jesus tells Peter, the author of this book, he tells Peter in Matthew 16, 18, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell, or Hades, shall not prevail against it. Satan is a thorn into our side, but not a hindrance to the church. So if it's not Satan, other times people will say, oh, well, it's the culture. And, you know, considering wherever you land politically, it's, oh, the greatest threat to the church is the political left. Oh, the greatest threat to the church is the political right. It's nationalism or it's critical race theory. It's being too woke or being too political. And again, there might be some wisdom to that. But if you think about who Peter is writing to, to, a church, to churches in minor Asia where they're being literally killed for their faith, and yet the church still prevailed, we can see that although external threats are a hindrance, they're not the greatest threat to the church. See, what I, what I think what Peter's trying to get at is the greatest threat to the church, as we see in this passage, is not from the outside walls of the church, but it comes internally. And within this passage, what Peter really wants us to understand is that the greatest threat to Citizens LA to being a fruitful, faithful, and biblical church is your shame. The personal shame, the individual shame, the communal shame that lasts in any church, in any community, in any society. You see, for first Peter, in this book that we're reading, the, the culture was much different than ours. It was based upon honor and shame, meaning today if, if I asked you, you know, after church, hey, what's your name and what do you do? Who are you? Oftentimes who you are is bound up in your accomplishments. It's what I have achieved. Yet when Peter is writing to, this, to these churches in Minor Asia or Turkey, it wasn't, your identity was not based upon what you did. It was based upon what you were born into, your family, your town, your community, your country. And oftentimes what the culture at large was doing with the church is they saw the Christian church as a threat. So what they were doing is they were trying to shame the church out of existence, saying, look at the dishonor and shame you're bringing to your family by being a Christian. A historian often writes, the church endured a barrage of verbal abuse designed to demean, discredit, and shame the church as social and moral deviants endangering the common good. This procedure of public shaming was employed as a means of social control with the aim of pressuring the minority community to conform to the conventional values and standards of the conduct of the majority. And you see, you might think, man, it's a little different, but nothing really has changed in our day and age. There is still shame for being a Christian, but the idea of shame itself has not evaporated from our society. I would say it has even intensified. And this is the thing, the, the main thesis that I hope to 
deliver today is this. When we live in shame, when we don't deal with our personal, communal, generational shame, what happens is you become disconnected to the community and therefore you become disconnected to God. When shame runs unchecked in your past, in your present, and ultimately your future, you become disconnected to everyone around you. Because shame makes you lose any sense of true identity that you carry. As I reread verses 4 to 7, Peter is, what, what is Peter stressing? Just think about that as you read this. As you come to Jesus, a living stone, rejected by men, he makes sure to remind the church, you worship a Savior that's rejected. Why? For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, that whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Peter's answer to the church has not changed from thousands of years ago. The main hindrance to us becoming a church is the shame that we carry. And what Peter's trying to stress is there is honor and strength and hope found in Jesus and ultimately the church that can overcome that shame. Because uh, you all realize this. Shame is an individual weight burdened by a communal problem. So meaning, for example, you know, I always tell uh, younger kids I was born like 20 or 15 years too early because being Korean is like cool now, right? BTS, cool. Like when I listened to Big Bang, that wasn't cool. I got made, I got shame for that, right? And I remember when I was in middle school, I was one of the only, one of the only Asians in my middle school. And I remember my parents, my mom especially, would always pack bibimbap, which is fried rice. And if you don't know, and if you know, if you're not Korean or Asian, the stench of bibimbap for me is delicious, but for others that aren't, you know, familiar with our community, it's, it smells weird. So I remember when I would open my Ziploc bag, I mean, a uh, Tupperware, sorry, we weren't that ghetto, a Tupperware container, and I opened that, and it smelled weird. Everyone would make fun of me. What they were saying is, that smells weird, so you must be weird. And I'd always eat in shame in the corner by myself. I'd always be terrified. I'd always have this sense, sense of anxiety going into lunch until... One day, a foreign exchange student came from our motherland, Korea, right? Or my motherland. And I remember I saw him, and we were just kind of like looking at each other, like, wait a second, like, we're both Korean? Okay, I don't know Korean, but there was this kind of communal bond. And I remember he opened his container, and it was a red bibimbap. It was kimchi bibimbap. And I was like, oh, you're in for it, right? Because kimchi is like dank, that smell, right? So I remember he opened it, and everyone just started making more fun of him. And there was a sense of, oh, my shame has been lifted, right? It's been cast upon this poor soul. But I remember as we were eating, we just locked eyes and we went, yeah, right? We just nodded. And for the first time, we kind of ate in strength of this small community that we developed. And I remember from that point on, I'd always eat next to him. And even when people make fun of me, he would talk to me in Korean. I would act like he know, I, I knew what he was saying. Was like, yeah, 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 whatever, but you're my brother, right? And what I realized back then is same, same till now, there is a way out of shame, and it's through community. And it's through this church often that we can find that. But before we get there, what we need to realize is, well, what does shame do to you? What's the power of shame that it has on your soul? And I'd often say that shame, it paralyzes your soul. Shame paralyzes your soul. There's a stark difference between guilt and shame. If you don't know uh, a, a psychologist by the name of Dr. Brenny Brown, she's given a lot of TED Talks. She's probably the world's most renowned expert on shame. 
And there's a big, really great TED Talk from her that I'd encourage all of you to listen to. And a lot of her observations are helpful, but her solution I would actually have problems with, which we'll get to. But one thing she observes is this. There's a stark difference between guilt and shame. Guilt says, I've done something wrong. Shame tells you, I am something wrong. See, guilt tells you, oh, I've made mistakes, so that's something that I should own up to. Shame tells you those mistakes define who you are. And there's a stark difference between guilt and shame. Guilt allows you to learn from your scars. Shame shackles you to your scars. And I want to make one thing clear with this message. Peter is not telling us to, uh, to be able to sin with a free conscience. When I say that we're supposed to overcome our shame, it does not give us a license to just do whatever we want, saying, I have no shame in Jesus. That's not the point of the gospel. But the powerful message of the gospel is not that you continue to sin, but that the shame that shackles you to your sin is somehow lifted. You see, shame yells a couple of things to your soul. At first, if you experience shame, it tells you, first, you are not good enough. It tells you no matter how much you make, no matter how many salary raises you get, no matter how many Instagram posts you post of a great restaurant that you found, no matter what you do, you are not good enough. But if you get over that, if you say, you know what, I've accomplished enough so that I can get over that, my shame is gone, shame develops into a new calling to your soul. It moves on to, well, who do you think you are? It tells you, I know the real you. You are not your accomplishments. You are the mistakes that you have occurred. You are the mistakes that others have put upon you. And it just paralyzes your soul. Shame is what drives you into the idolatry of work. Because for often, for a lot of us, the reason we work so hard is not because of our convictions, but because of our fears. The reason why we're so addicted to our jobs and our slacks, as I am even right now, and our emails, it's because there's this inner voice inside of you that always says, who do you think you are, and you are not good enough. And when those things happen unchecked, what happens is it gets deeper into your sense of identity. It starts to form who you are. You see, shame is what drives you, if you have a miscarriage, to go into the bathroom with silent tears and tell yourself, I don't deserve to be a mother. Shame is what makes you think, oh, you know what, I'm just a social drinker. But in all honesty, if you're honest with me and yourself, the reason why you keep drinking over and over and over again is because you can't look at yourself in the mirror. Shame is even what tells you if you've been emotionally, spiritually, or even sexually abused, I am not worthy enough to be loved. I caused this abuse. So shame tells you no one will love you. And this is a thing, when we allow shame to run rampant, not only does it paralyze your soul, it disconnects you from everyone around you. Shame is the greatest inhibitor to any sense of community, to any sense of relationship, to any sense of intimacy. And Peter understands how powerfully shame can dislodge community because shame ultimately, with all that I said, makes you feel unworthy of connection. There's a great quote from two psychologists. I'm going to quote a lot of psychologists today. But Jean Baker Miller and Irene Stiver, she, they write this about shame. It should be up on the screen behind me. With shame, we become so fearful of engaging others because of past neglects, humiliations, and violations. 
we begin to keep important parts of our experience, our lives, out of connection. We do not feel safe enough to more fully represent ourselves in relational encounters. You know what they're saying, and I think it's a biblical notion. Shame hides your true identity made in the image of God. You know, the idea of the image of God to me as a pastor has always been fascinating. Because in Genesis, when it says all of us were created, we were created what? Not in the power of God, not in the wisdom of God, not in the knowledge of God, but in the image of God. What does that mean? There's, there's so many things that could mean, but one thing that I've realized what that means is to be human is to be seen. The only way an image can fully exist is if it's fully seen in its full splendor by other people. That's the only way it can be an image. So what Genesis is telling us is to be human at the core. I'm not talking about Christianese, but I'm just talking about to be a human being is to be seen. And it's not just so that you be connected to others, but that you can be seen and show your glory, your splendor as you were created uniquely in the image of God. But what shame does is it covers that image. It covers a painting with a black darb, that all black black blanket that all you can see is just pure darkness. And this is the thing when we live in shame, these psychologists have, have mentioned three things that we do towards people, and I think they're actually very biblical. When we live in shame and don't deal with our shame, we disconnect with people in three different ways. We move away from them, we move towards them falsely, or we move against them. We move away from them, towards them, or against them. This is what they mean, and this is very biblical. Think about the story of Adam and Eve, the first instance that shame enters into the world. How do they respond to themselves and also to others? Well, first, they move away. They hide. When it's encountered that they eat from the, fr- uh, the tree of fruit and knowledge, what do they do? They cover themselves. They hide from God's presence. In the same way for some of us, when you deal with shame, the way you disconnect with others is you separate yourselves from relationships. You withdraw. You become invisible. You become isolated. You tell yourself, I'm busy. You tell yourself, oh, I was exposed to COVID. But in all honesty, you just don't want to deal with people. And you starve yourself of any relationship that you need to be human. So like Adam and Eve, some of us in our shame, we move away. Others of us, we move towards others in false notion. When Adam and Eve finally are called by God to come forward, what do they do? They don't come presenting their full naked selves. They cover themselves in fig leaves. They present themselves, they move towards God, not in the full splendor that they were made, but covered, masked, not themselves. So some of us, although we move away, others of us in shame, we move towards by keeping important parts of ourselves outside of relationships that we have. We hide our scars. We hide our past. We mask ourselves. We, we try and appease people. We try and make sure this relationship is secured above all, and we just try and survive in relationship because we know we need it, but we can't show our full selves. You know, some of us, including myself, the reason why you're loud is not because you're extroverted, but you're trying to mask all the insecurities that you carry if you're like me. So some of us, we move away. Others of us, we move towards. But all of us in shame, we also move against others. Again, in the story of Adam and Eve, what does Adam do when God finally confronts in his shame, what have you done? What is the first thing Adam says? It's the woman that you made. 
Adam moves against the only person that was made to be with him. Why? Because shame also directs your anger, resentment, and rage to any source, to any potential of new shame or humiliation. You've been so scarred and so shamed that the only way you can deal with your shame is to shame other people. You know how I know this? Parents, we all do this, right? I remember I was at Ikea. I, I hate Ikea. Ikea is like the Swedish DMV, according to myself. And I remember we eating at the cafe. My wife's picking up food. I'm with both of my kids. I have a daughter and son, three and two. Uh, long story, one of them was not supposed to be there, but everything's God's gift. But anyways, I'm having two kids in front of me, two toddlers having an explosion of fury. And they're screaming, I want my food, I want my iPad, I want um, Blippi, if you guys know what that is. But anyways, they're all screaming. My wife texts me, is that our kids? And I feel a sense of shame. All these parents are looking at me. And you know, parents, what we do best is we judge other parents. How dare you do that, right? As I feel the sense of shame, what do I do? I shame my kids. I look at them and be like, what are you guys doing? Do you, do you know what you're doing? You're being a bad boy and a bad girl. What am I doing? In my own shame, I'm trying to deflect that to give that to my kids to try and solve the problem. All in all, what I'm trying to say is this. When you live in shame, you cannot connect to anyone. You move away, you move towards falsely, or you move against. And when we do that, we can never be the church. How are we called to be God's people that have received mercy when all we're trying to do is to disconnect ourselves from other people because we're so ashamed of who we are? So how does Jesus aid us? How, what, what does the gospel do? What does Peter tell us is the solution to all of this stuff? What he tells us is this, that the answer is empathy. Again, another, philo- uh, another psychologist that I find helpful by the name of Maureen Walker She says this, and it's an interesting notion. She says, there is a solution out of shame. And there is parts of it that I agree with and a big part that I don't, but we'll get to that. This is what she writes. And if you could, you know, I always quote people because they're much smarter than me. And listen to what she says. Healing the shame that spontaneously arises in us or that is done to us by others to control or disempower us involves reestablishing a belief in empathetic, empathetic possibility. Empathetic possibility. That is, the person struggling with shame must come to believe that another person can respond empathetically to his or her experience. The shamed person must come to know that she is respected and matters to the other person, that her efforts to bring herself more fully into relationship will not be met with severe judgments and rejection, and that there will be the possibility of mutuality. It's a beautiful quote. And I wish that could be true. Because what, what ultimately Maureen Walker is saying is this. There's a stark difference, and you guys might have known this already, between sympathy and empathy. There's a huge difference between sympathy and empathy. Dr. Brené Brown does a really good job of describing this. Sympathy and empathy are two different things. The shame is a hole that you fall into. Empathy and sympathy are two different ways you can do that. Sympathy is walking by and looking down and saying, man that sucks. Good luck. Empathy is choosing to see that that person is in the hole and walking down those dark steps to be fully present with that person there. Sympathy is an observational choice. Empathy is an action that you take. It's a huge difference. And what the psychologist Dr. Walker is saying 
is that unless you empathize with someone, shame is never healed. Sympathy is such false notions of encouragement. You know what sympathy is? Oftentimes, when you look down in sympathy, man, that sucks, and you cry out, yeah, it does, the sympathetic person will try and silver line the issue. Man, my, my, my marriage sucks, you know, but at least, at least you're married, right? Man, my, my kids, they're rough. Well, well, you know, don't forget, kids are a gift. When any, anyone ever tells me that, that does not help my situation as a father, right? And oftentimes what we do in sympathy is we try to silver line the issues and we act like Job's friends. We try and give wisdom, knowledge, logic, when oftentimes in shame, in discomfort, in pain, the only thing you need is not wisdom, but an empathetic possibility of relationship. Oftentimes what you need in your shame is not logic, but you need silent tears with you next to you. And this is the thing. Like Dr. Walker or even Dr. Brené Brown, I'm sure they're much more researched than me. And I think that's great if we could get that with human beings. But the problem is, as you all know, the empathetic possibility with human beings to other human beings, there is a limit. There's a cap because all of us are imperfect. And I know this myself because in my own marriage, in an own covenant where I'm supposed to protect my wife from her past shame or from her current shame, I'm often the one that adds even more shame into her plate. If I fail as a husband to my wife, where can we find empathetic possibility with human beings? The answer is we cannot. There are instances, there are glimpses of empathetic possibility with other human beings. But at the end of the day, the only way to fully cleanse yourself is to find an empathetic possibility outside of humanity. And where do we find that? What Peter is trying to get to us in this passage is there is an empathetic figure that comes from the heavens. There's an empathetic figure. We have a God. Think about this. We have a God who does not look down on our predicament and say, man, that sucks. I hope you figure it out. And we cry out, God, we're sinning, but, you know, at least I'm here with you. We do not have a God who does that. We do not have a sympathetic God. We have an empathetic Savior. Jesus, as we just worshipped last week, what does the incarnation tell us? The infinite became finite. He climbed down the stairs of heaven to this dirty place called the earth to sit with us. There's a great pastor by the name of Jeremy Berg. He writes, it's not on the screen, but I found this to be a very helpful Jesus didn't just bear our sins on the cross. He took upon himself our sickness, pain, and wounds, the consequences and symptoms resulting from our sins, even the suffering and shame we've brought upon ourselves through sinful choices and habits. And think about this. There is a sense of shame with what Jesus is doing. But how does Jesus respond as he's being shamed on earth? He prophesied, when I come on earth and do my ministry, there will be people that reject me and shame me. What does he do? Does he move away from us? No. Does he move towards us falsely? No. Does he move against us with his open hand as he should have or as he could have? No, he does not. He moves towards us with his full naked self on the cross. Think about what the cross is. It's a reversal of the garden. In the greatest moment of shame, that Jesus has felt in his life, he reverses what Adam and, Adam and Eve did in the presence of God. You know how I know this works? Think about who's, re- think about who's writing First Peter. It's Peter, the apostle Peter. Who is Peter? 
He's the one that denied Jesus three times on the cross. Think about the shame that comes with that. That's like if Jason got in prison falsely and then someone comes to me like, hey, you know Jason? I'd be like, no, I, I don't know him. It's like there's a picture of you and Jason. That's not me. There's a guest sermon of you on December 26th preaching on citizens. Oh, that's not me. Can you imagine the amount of shame and anger that you would feel towards me if I'm a friend of Jason? And then from that, somehow I write a letter praising who Jason is. How is that possible? How can Peter write this as someone that has experienced the most shame probably of all the apostles, minus Judas, which is another story? How? Because Peter understood the empathetic Savior on the cross. We have a Savior who does not just take our sins, but sits in us with our pain and shame. He was human. He felt the shame that you feel. All the scars that you have felt, all of us carry some sort of scar or trauma from our family, from our relationships. Jesus understands. It's not, oh, I know what you're talking about from some friend that doesn't. It's a God who completely does. And this is the thing. What the gospel tells us is not only does Jesus take our shame, but he gives us a completely new status in life. In verse 9, Peter says this. In this shamed Savior that we worship, that takes our shame, he reminds the people after he hears that in First Peter, you, church, remember this. You, you worship a cornerstone that was put to shame, but so that you would never be put to shame. Verse 9, but you, citizens of L.A., you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a royal priesthood. Why does Peter say royal priesthood? That's the first time that language is used in the New Testament, royal priesthood, two very different words put together. And this is the thing, it's hard to make this connection today because oftentimes in our society today, you believe that you can achieve as long as you put your mind to it. Meaning, you know, if I really want to become rich or famous with a little bit of luck, as long as I try, I can get there. It was a completely different predicament back in these days, especially for Israel. You see, for Israel to be royalty, to be, to what, what it meant to be a priest was that in the temple, in the Jewish temple, the priest was responsible for mediating God's presence to his people. That was a very highly sought-out, prestigious job. The only way you can become a priest is not be by trying harder. It's not by putting your head down to the ground and being like, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to work, I'm going to study. The only way you can become a priest is through the bloodline of Aaron. Only those in the, the tribe of Levi could become a priest. What does that mean? The priesthood, that, that, that honored position... It was only through birthright. The only way you could achieve something back in these days was if you were born into it. So for a majority of people living in Israel, they never had the chance to become royalty. What Peter is telling us is in this system where even you cannot achieve to become real royalty, the only way that you are becoming a royal priesthood is through the bloodline of Jesus. See, there's this term theologically, I don't want to bore you, but it's called double imputation. What that basically means is Jesus not only takes your sins, but he also gives you his righteousness in return. Think about this. The gospel, it could have just been like, hey, I removed your sins and I'm leaving you there. And we'd be like, dude, thanks so much, Jesus. He goes much more beyond that. He cleanses of our sin and shame and says, you know what? Wear my robes of royalty. Wear my robes of righteousness. You are all royal priests. That's the power you can have to fight the shame that you carry. You know, even my own story, my father showed me this in a weird way. 
Um, I was just talking with Jason about this, but I'm a huge golf addict. Um, it's pretty bad. My wife gets on me all the time. But I remember growing up, I hated golf because my dad would always take me to the driving range and he'd say, hey, I'll teach you. But his teaching was just hitting balls and said, good luck and, and hope you figure it out. So I remember at the driving range when I'm like 12 or 11 and I'm trying to hit balls. And if, if you don't know, golf is one of the most frustrating sports. And as a 12-year-old, I'm trying to hit the ball. And I remember hearing these kids behind me and I look back and like, oh my gosh, these are the kids that make fun of me for eating peanut pop, right? And lo and behold, they're on the golf team. And I hear them behind me, and they're taking bets. How far will this Asian kid hit it? 10 yards. No, you know what? Five yards. I got money on 20 yards, right? And I remember I stepped up, and, I, and I'm trying to ignore them and the shame that's behind me, right? And I step up, and I just whiff, and I hear them laugh, crackling, right? And I, I distinctly remember that sound, and the, 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 the amount of shame that I felt drew me to just be paralyzed, I just literally for 10 minutes just held my club just staying still because I was terrified. And they were just laughing louder and louder. And then my dad started to hear this. He looked over and he said, hey, you know, in, in, a little bit of broken English. But he said, hey, what are you guys doing? Right? And they're just like, is this your son? And I remember my dad said, yes. And they're like, well, he can't hit the ball. And I remember this very clearly. My dad just stared at them for like five minutes. And I was like, this is getting weird, right? Like, what are you doing, Dad? He just stared at them for literally five minutes, and they're laughing loud and louder. My dad steps up to the tee, and he bombs it. Well, like, relative, I could hit it farther than him now, but anyways, at that time, he bombed it. He looks back. They're, like, kind of laughing, like, this is weird. Steps again, he bombs it. Steps up again, looks back for another good two minutes, and they're not laughing, but they're just like, this is kind of weird. Bombs it again. And he turns around for the third time and says, this is my son. Leave him alone. And they all scatter. It's a weird story, and I, I remember that really because that's the only time my dad showed me affection at that age, right? Which I'm going through counseling, so don't worry. But anyways, at that moment, what was my dad doing? For a Korean adult, male, having to deal with these immigrant kids to his eyes, it's a nuisance. It brings shame upon him, right? It's like he doesn't want to deal with them, but yet he chose to take my shame, to redirect all that energy towards himself, and not only did he say, I'll bear it, but he could bear it and he could give so much more back. He said, this is my son. I can drive it 220 and he's my son, right? And in a weird way, what he did is he covered me in his own protection. Not only did he take my shame, but he said, what I do is now onto my son. Weird story. But what I hope to make you connect with is that's what the gospel is doing. You feel that all the time. You step up to a tea box called life and you whiff, whiff, whiff. And there's crackling behind you and you hear it. You try to ignore it, but let's be honest, all of us hear it. What the gospel tells you is stop trying to hit the ball. Jesus is there right behind you and says, I'll take all of that shame and redirect it to myself. And not only will I take it, but I'll give you so much more. And that's the gospel. Let me end with this as I'm running out of time. What does that mean for us today? How does that mean the church is a temple? Why, is Jesus, why does Peter say that? It's, it's a weird passage the more you think about it. In verse, um, in verse 5, when he says you are being built up as a spiritual house, it could be better translated as a temple. Why does Peter say, look, we have a Savior who is shamed to take our shame. So remember, royal priests, you are a temple. Why does he say that? Well, this is the thing. All of us have a temple. Temples, although they existed physically in the ancient days, they exist temporally today in our own realities. Every god you worship 
enters you into a temple. And when you enter into a temple, what do you do? You always offer a sacrifice. If it's work, you offer your family, time, and life. If it's alcohol, you offer your health, your relationships, whatever it may be. If it's this or that, if you think about it, you guys can do the logic. Every temple you worship, every God you worship has a temple. And in that temple, you must sacrifice something. Why is a church called to be a temple? Well, let's, again, read very carefully what Peter says. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house or a temple to be a holy priesthood. And this is the key phrase, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. What is the sacrifice that we're called to give in this temple called Citizens LA? Because this is a temple. Don't get it mixed up. But you see, what God is asking for you in sacrifice is not a lamb. See, this is the thing. Back in the day, when, when you were giving a sacrifice, what you were doing is you were saying, I'm so shameful towards this God, this goddess, these gods or these goddesses, that this sacrifice that I have will cover my shame to allow me to enter into God's or God's or goddess's presence. Take my lamb, my chicken, my cow, maybe in sometimes a human being, a slave, take that innocent blood in their minds and let it cover me. It's a broken system. And yet what Peter is saying is we'll give a spiritual sacrifice. What does that mean? Romans 12.1, this is what Paul says about spiritual sacrifices. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. What Paul and Peter are saying is the church is called to be a temple because when you bring a sacrifice in the old temple system, you never brought your full self. Do you get what I'm saying? You always have to bring something along with you to say, hey, take this and then we can be in relationship. In this temple called the church, called Citizens LA, what God is calling you to do is don't bring anything but yourselves. And that's the hardest thing to do. Because I know if you're like me, every time you come to worship, it's not a physical sacrifice, but there's some sort of sacrifice you're bringing. Saying like, oh, hey, let me keep my distance. That's my sacrifice. I hope I can fit in. Oh, you know what? I'll join community groups or small groups or whatever it may be here at Citizens. You know what? I'm not going to share my whole self. That's my sacrifice. I'm not going to share this about my past, my sins. That's my sacrifice so that I can maintain this relationship. Oh, you know what? Even me serving on, on, on our education team, on our welcoming team, that's my sacrifice so that I can be acceptable in God's eyes and the people's eyes. Do you understand what Peter is saying? He's saying, no, forget that. The gospel allows you to bring your whole selves to this place called the church. And until you do that, you will not be a church. You'll be a congregant meeting of, of just fake selves coming saying, hey, here's my sacrifice. Let me keep my distance. So with that, the church should be a reminder not only of the washing of our sins, but the ability to bring forth over and over and over again our whole selves so that what does a temple do when we do that? We bring God's presence in this community and in the community around us. Look, I, 2021, if you're like me, I thought 2020 was crazy. 2021 was crazier for me. And anytime there's a crazy year, people don't talk about it. There's more experiences of shame that you feel, more moments of failure that you felt. You know, I, I know even in my church in the Silicon Valley, it was called the Great Resignation because everyone kind of left their jobs and wanted to find something better for themselves. 
There's a lot of people that at my church. I know a countless number of people that left their job and can never find a new one, but never told anyone. They're too scared. They're too ashamed. And I remember a story within my church when someone finally had the honesty to bring that up. Someone said, hey, my company's hiring. Just come on board. It's a, it's a, it's a crazy story, but I think until this church and all of our churches can do that, bring our full selves, we're not able to encounter the presence of God together. So I hope this, as we close, let's build a temple, let's build a church free of any communal shame, free of any individual shame, that we don't move away from each other, that we don't move against each other, that we don't move each other to each other with masks on, but our complete full selves, that we offer ourselves as spiritual sacrifices because you are already acceptable in God's eyes and therefore we should be acceptable to each other's eyes. And I hope with that we can find healing for all of our shame built on the grace of the cross. Let's pray. Um, Lord, you know, I don't know, especially being here as a guest, what everyone is dealing with. Shame comes in different shapes, forms, and sizes. It comes in the past from family trauma. It comes in the present with addictions. It comes in the future with anxiety. But I hope for those that walked in, even those who don't even know who you are, even those that are just checking this whole thing out, that they be able to understand the power that the shame has on them, but the greater power of the cross brings an empathy, that we have an empathetic God, like a God Savior, who cleanses us of our sins and gives us a righteous life so that we can build a community with those that call you Abba Father. So Lord, allow this church to be that, allow it to be rooted and, and anchored in that gospel truth and to give empathy to all of the people here so that we can point our eyes back to the cross. We thank you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.